Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, Mr. Real. How are you, Radio Free Mormon? I'm doing great. You look like you got a haircut. I uh, I don't know when I got my last haircut. It was a couple weeks ago, I think. I don't know when, when I got, got mine either, unless it was two hours ago. Yeah, I shaved again today, but I didn't shave cut my face this time. Good. I hope you avoided the filtrum. Yeah, yeah. No, no. The filtrum, I, I didn't cut last time. It was over on the side of my face, but the, the filtrum was uh, not bad enough. It was short enough that it didn't hurt so bad. Oh, okay. We've heard the story about the guy who had the Roman nose. No. You could tell because it was Roman all over his face. <laughs> I've got a big nose myself, so. What do you mean yeah. myself? What kind of crack is that? I don't know. It's a big nose. Look at it. As Basil Rathbone once said to Nigel Bruce, remember, Watson, that throughout the ages, prominent men have had prominent noses. Look at that. No wonder they're prominent. What's new and exciting? What's new and exciting is Sunstone coming up. Apparently, I'm going to be doing a magic show, so I better get cracking. Yeah, I was. I saw the flyer for that today on Facebook. It's pretty sharp looking. It the Radio so Free Mormon magic show. Now the pressure's on. I got to make the show at least live up to the flyer. I'm not going to ask you what it is, but you've got a trick in mind that's going to be your closing act, right? You've got the the thing of all things that. Oh yeah. That you're going to do. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've got the thing of all things. Believe me. Okay, folks, you're going to want to go to Sunstone and check out the Radio Free Mormon Magic Show. We were talking off the air before we got started. I will announce it here. Um, if you go to um, almostawaken.org, if, if people aren't aware, uh, my co-host for that podcast, Britt Hartley, she's a member of the Mormon Discussion Incorporated team of podcasters that are uh, under that umbrella. Um, her child had a kind of a tragic fall and, and had some serious injuries. And uh, there's a bit of a road ahead for, for some rehab and things there. Um, we created a, a fundraising campaign uh, unique to that cause. And if you go to the Almost Awakened podcast, you can click the link there and donate. Um, and it, ex it explains itself there in full. So I won't take that time here. But for any folks who um, are aware of Britt Hartley or want to help in some way, um, sending a few bucks to, to that campaign that will help her travel cost and her husband's travel cost as they take that child to, to rehab and therapy, uh, which will be across state lines for at least part of it. So um, obviously when something this serious happens, it you got to kind of go to the best places to get progress and get things moving again. So yeah. anyway, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but she's a dear friend of mine and my co-host for that podcast. So any help would be appreciated. You spend however much time you want on that bill. Yeah, no, no, we're good. Um, tonight, we wanted to talk about uh, a bunch of books that uh, this was my week and 
when I uh, started deconstructing Mormonism, it really was books that were the impetus for that. You and I were talking off the air a couple days ago about it was a little different for you. And I'd love to give you a minute or two here in a second to, to explain what it was that kind of helped you figure some of these issues out and move along. But for the most part, there was a lot of internet searches and a lot of articles and things read too. But I really did stick my nose in a bunch of books. Many of those we're going to go over tonight. Uh, because I think books are beginning to be kind of a lost thing. Everybody listens to podcasts. Everybody gets their books on Audible. I don't think a lot of these books are on Audible. And uh, Print is dead. I, yeah. And I want people to recognize, to some degree, the hard work that people in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s <laughs> had, to, uh, had to go through uh, to learn the sticky issues and to kind of come to grips with Mormonism. Yes, very good. Because it was before the internet, right? You and I both really did a chunk of this before the internet was doing its thing. Yes, we did. Absolutely. What was it for you? Because you said it really wasn't books as much. I mean, you've read a bunch of these, but it wasn't books as the primary impetus for this. Oh, my gosh. I've done at least seven or eight, eight hours with John DeLynn on this relatively recently on the From TVM to RFM two-parter. So mm -hmm. I don't want to belabor the point there. I will say that I didn't come out of it um, or graduate from Mormonism so much based upon books dealing with the messiness, although they were helpful in getting me to make sense of what was going on as I was graduating. But mainly it was because I was studying things so hard, taking it seriously, neck deep in apologetics, finding out what all the arguments are. And when you find out what all the arguments for are, excuse me, are, you have to also find what all the arguments are against. And that's the problem. Because sometimes the arguments in favor of Mormonism are not as strong as the arguments against it that I was seeking to defeat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, like you, I mean, there was a ton of uh, dialogue PDFs, uh, the old farm brown stapled, you know, papers that Dan Peterson, his early crew, probably carry shirts involved in some of that. And uh, I read a lot of those things too, but for whatever reason, it was just books that really stuck out to me as really forming my uh, intellectual understanding that things got complicated in Mormonism pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, and, and we can even start off with the first one here. Let me uh, change the screen a little bit. But this was, I read this one before I even got baptized into the church. This is, and by the way, folks, um, in the comments, feel free to chime in along the way with what your uh, books were and articles even. If there are certain dialogue PDFs or a talk at Sunstone, whatever it was that, you know, gave you the information that helped you have enough information to be able to deconstruct this thing, we'd love to have those in the comments. And when we get to the end, we'll take phone calls and we'll give a few of you a chance to talk about important books or articles or talks or whatever it was that, that impacted you. But tonight I thought I would go through a list of books that have been deeply helpful to me and you added a few things into this list as well, and, and you said you've read a maybe, I don't know, two-thirds or a little more than that of the ones that, that I'd picked out. So should be a cool conversation. But this first one, No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. I was investigating the church, and I wanted to know everything I could about Mormonism. So I went to my local city library, the Sandusky Library in northern Ohio, and I went to their section on Mormonism, and they had 10 books there. And I thought, man, this is the true and living church of Jesus Christ, because I was in the middle of the discussions, I had set a date for baptism, 
And uh, I wanted to know everything about this, the kingdom of God on earth. And uh, I saw this book, No Man Knows My History. And at first I thought, as a 17-year-old kid, I thought it was an autobiography by Joseph Smith. And it wasn't until I kind of got through a little bit of it that I realized it was written by somebody else, uh, a really cool chick by the name of Fawn Brody. Yes, Joseph um, was writing under his gnome de plume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like uh, Mark Twain and those guys, huh? Um, and so I, as I read this thing, I immediately had to pause. Um, it, it was so disconcerting to me. I immediately went to my, uh, the girl I was dating who became my wife. I went to her parents, my future, my future parent-in-laws. And I sat down with them and said, I, I'm reading a book right now. And it, it says a lot of not so good stuff about Joseph Smith and about the early church. And they really didn't have any answers for me. And uh, this, even before I got baptized, I started to put some things on the shelf as I, as I tried to figure out what was adding up and what wasn't. Did reading this book delay your baptismal date? No, because I did what the church told me to do. I read the book and I prayed about it and I got myself. Well, the church an never answer. told you to read that book. No, no, not this one, but I read the Book of Mormon and they told me to pray about it and I did that. And I got a I got a manifestation of the spirit. So I pressed forward and and was trying to endure to the end, which didn't work out too well. No, no. You uh you're bad on enduring. Yeah. Good on getting Any, baptized, bad on enduring. Any thoughts on Fawn Brody or the No Man Knows My History? Uh, no, I think you've covered it. I know we've got like 20 books that we've got to cover tonight. I will make an admission here that I have not read this book. And I know I'm, I'm hearing gasps from across the country, if not the entire world, when I say that. But this is one that's still on my to-read list. Yeah, and I started reading it again a few months back, got maybe 20 pages in and I stopped. So I still have to pull it back off the shelf and do that. But um, I wanted to go back and read it and see, because I know I missed a lot of stuff and because my brain was trying to figure out how to just keep believing and keep moving on. And I really wanted to give it a good second look from this side of things. But there's that one. No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. I have, however, read this one. Look right at there. that. Isn't it interesting? Fawn Brody was given such a hard time by David O. McKay, which I think was her uncle or grandfather or something i think uncle but i could be wrong and uh richard bushman essentially writes the same book with just a little bit of a faithful edge to it instead of being a critical edge but it's the same data pretty much and it's heralded as the greatest biography of joseph smith right mm -hmm. from inside the church right so we've come a long way where we get to talk about these things and still not perfect but we get to talk about these things and some of it even makes its way into a deseret book I think it was exactly 60 years after, um, I'm sorry, the first one you talked about, Fawn Brody, No Man yeah, Knows no My Man History. Knows yeah. That was 1945, right? Cause, uh, sounds right. Because Rough Stone Rolling came out in 2005, if memory serves, because I read it in December of that year. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of Rough Stone Rolling? I thought it was a bit of a dry slog. However, I made it through, I think, twice. And I was surprised about several things, one of which was the treatment of polygamy. And I learned some things back in 2005 that I wasn't really happy about regarding polygamy. But the one thing that sticks with me was the brief touching on the narrative about the priesthood restoration and how even Richard Bushman admitted that it was possible or some have argued that Joseph Smith 
made up the story of Peter, James, and John, and then recast it backward in time as having happened in 1829. Yeah, he doesn't say that that's the case, but his wording is pretty much like, hey, the data seems to indicate and others seem to hold that position that just like uh, David Whitmer had imposed, right, that it was an afterthought years later. Yes, and it does seem that some of our listeners are wondering what we've done with Maven. Yeah, she's not here tonight. She is uh, in a place where she can't, without being... um, Are you describing the basement now? No, 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 no. So I don't really, I don't know the details of her trip, but she's just not, she's not able to participate without it being really inconvenient for her. So we'll just leave it at that. But she's not here tonight. So I'm the one kind of manning all the the comments uh, and we'll put up these screenshots of these books and stuff. By the way, folks, if you, if you value still having a reference library of things Mormon, these are great. The books we're going to go over tonight are going to be great books to have. If you do buy them on Amazon, please go to the Amazon uh, Smile site for Mormon Discussion Incorporated first and buy it that way. Um, You'll know that you're there. I'll just put it up on the screen here. This is my Amazon Smile. You'll notice in the top left corner, it says that I'm supporting Mormon Discussion. And if you hold your cursor over that, you'll see that it's us. Mormon Discussion Incorporated, our missions provides uh, support folks with uh, through religious trauma, uh, offering them tools and talks about podcasts and things like that. So you'll just know that it's us. We've made $355 million. I, I Yeah, I'm holding it all in an escrow account. Um, You've and been holding out of Mr. Real. Yeah, yeah. But look at that. I have raised $10 for uh, Mormon Discussion Incorporated since. Oh, that's, uh, our, that's our cut. Dang it. Yeah, no, no. That's, that's the amount I've raised. This is the amount they've given to charity in total. I wish... Wow. I wish it worked that easy. That would you and I would both be on an island somewhere if that was the case. Yes. By the way, uh, never fear, everyone. I will be going downstairs after the show is over with a bucket of fish heads for Maven. Yeah. So awesome. Yep. So Maven, there's that. All right, folks. That's so two books. Got, That's two books out of twenty. Yep. So uh, Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling. Uh, next one is Early Mormonism in the Magic Worldview. This is D. Michael Quinn. And uh, this was an incredible book because, yeah, you've got that. I've got that with the cover you have as well. Mm-hmm. That's this was beautiful. That. Yeah, this was beautiful because it gave all of the early folk magic and treasure digging and um, Lumen Walters and Sally Chase and all the all the crazy stuff that was happening. Um, it was it was all in this book, and there were all the seer stones were being talked about, all the cool stuff that was happening. So. Uh, anyway, just fascinating book. I assume you've read this one. I did. I read it in the 1980s when it came out and was making such a hubbub bub around apologetic circles. Farms was having a, um, I don't know if a field day is the correct term, but they were turning out a lot of responsive literature to this book. So I thought I should read this book since I was reading all the responsive literature first. Yeah. I'm not sure I got a lot out of it the first time because I really didn't want to understand what was in it. I just wanted to say I had read it. I don't know if anybody else has ever read a book in that way. Have you, Bill? Um, I'll uh, No, I mean, the thing I've always done with Quinn's work is um, the footnotes have just been such, uh, you, I, I paid as much attention to the footnotes as I did the book. Um, but no, I, I didn't read it the way you did. Well, there you go. Well, uh, that was a hardback version. I now have a paperback version, which I'm working my way through. 
and enjoying it much more this time now that I'm paying attention to what is being said. Yeah, look at that. So an incredible book as well. Uh, oh, I wanted to book. tell you something about Please. this. So a little story. Um, yeah. Back when I was going through this in the late 80s, I was trying to make room in my head. You know, this is a shifting puzzle piece of how to make sense of all this stuff that I'm finding out about Mormonism. It's not as clean cut as I had thought it was. There's all this folk magic that's going on. And for a period of maybe less than a year in the latter part of the 1980s, I was making space for the idea that magic, folk magic, the kind of magic that Joseph Smith apparently believed in was actually real. And I probably discarded that not long after I came up with it, mainly because it doesn't seem like anything that Joseph Smith did that could be tested ever worked, like with the treasure digging. I mean, why should we think that Joseph Smith's use of a seer stone to translate ancient gold plates would be any more successful than his use of the same seer stone to try and find hidden treasure? Question mark. Yeah. So I held that for maybe six months, maybe less. But that's why I found it so amusing. Back in uh, November <clears throat> of last year at that uh, debate, when Kwaku apparently holds that position, or at least did at that time, I don't know if he's changed it, that the magic is real. And so I don't know if I smiled at that point, but what I saw in that was a recognition of myself at approximately the same age, trying to make mm. space and make sense of all of this information. Yeah, the church is true, so Joseph's magic had to be real. Well, yes, it has to be real. And actually, if it is real, it's going to make a lot more sense of everything else. Yeah, and, and to the point where there's these one or two or three vague references, right? There's the Martin Harris I always say needle in a haystack, but it was a pin and a set of, and a bunch of straw or something, right? Wood chips yes. or whatever. And, uh, you know, there's that one. There's some other brief little mention that Joseph found some neighbor's lost thing. But then you have all, right. all this evidence that's contrary. And, yeah, Joseph and Smith has his face it. in the hat with a stone. And here's the needle over here in the hay. And here's Joseph Smith with his face in the hat and not looking at all. And then he finds the needle. Yeah. Yeah, and the only explanation is that magic is real. Yeah, I don't know if you could see what I was doing with my eyes when I was yeah. recreating. Yeah, you were looking off to the side and seeing yeah. the needle. <laughs> that was a real tough one to figure yeah. out. And you and I both know, so, you know, again, there's no way to know, but the rational thought is that he saw where the thing landed and it was a good chance to pretend he didn't and then pretend to be magical. I have a feeling from my reading of church history that Martin Harris was not the most difficult audience to fool. Mm -mm. No. Yeah. I mean, dear Jesus, right? <laughs> exactly. There are, there are people who actually want to be fooled. And yeah. I think that's probably more than 50% of the world's population. You can understand why his wife was pissed at him all the time. And more than 90% of the membership of the church. Yes. <laughs> yes. You could understand why his wife was upset with him. that. <laughs> Oh, that whole 116 pages doesn't make sense either, but I'll, we'll let that go for another day. Uh, so early Mormonism, or sorry, yeah, early Mormonism in the magic worldview. And then, of course, to finish up, Quinn did, I, I haven't read the last book yet, but the first two books, uh, Mormon Hierarchy, Origins of Power. Yep, I've got this one on my shelf too. And this one is beautiful. You use this book thoroughly for your apostolic coup d'etat. You know, it might seem thoroughly, but actually I think it was maybe a chapter or two. It is yeah. so dense. Quinn's D. Michael, 
Yeah, what D. Michael Quinn does is so dense that I had read through this book uh, once, and then I went back through it to try and research it for the, those episodes on apostolic coup d'etat, and it was like I had never even read this part before. It was so new to me. When I read this book, it shifted my mind to making space in my head that Brigham Young was not a good person, that he had gone off the rails a little bit, but then I would just put it on the shelf and decide that the church was still true anyway. Um, and I, it allowed me room to not blame Joseph Smith for a bunch of things and to, and to put the blame at Brigham Young's feet. Um, but this book was fascinating. And again, footnotes, maybe more so than the book at times. Yeah. It's like, uh, what is it? Scarlett O'Hara says, I'll think about that tomorrow. Yeah. I spent most of my life as a Mormon thinking about Mormonism tomorrow. Yeah, totally. Um, it, it's strange too, when, when books are the primary way to get information or pamphlets and brochures and, you know, without having the ability to search on a computer and have everything online, you're limited to finding out a few facts at a time and your brain does a much better job of belief persistence or the backfire effect when, like I read Ken Hill's book, I think, no, Marvin Hill, Marvin Hill's book on Joseph Smith. And there were a few things in that book that raised my eyebrow about Joseph. I don't remember what it was, but there were things in there. Marvin was more, he was a believing member, I believe. And he was more transparent than most uh, writers inside the church of church history. And um, I, I just was able to just take a few facts I learned and just move on. And every, every month or so I would request books from our local library through other libraries I'd read them on Mormonism. I'd learn a thing or two that was troubling. I'd put it on the shelf and move on. And, you know, we'll get to the end here and talk about the CES letter, but uh, reading a book at a time on a specific facet of Mormonism really did create a space where you could continue believing and just find the church interesting. Yes, and sometimes the most unkindest cuts to my testimony came not from enemies of the church or critics of the church, but from people who were members of the church yeah. and like you said every now and again they would drop something i think it was um i don't think it was by donna hill i think it was this other fellow's biography about joseph smith that was coming out in the early 1980s as part of this sort of um, reaction to new mormon history but i remember there's a chapter in there talking about the revelation to joseph smith to not translate the book of mormon over again from the beginning but instead to translate these new plates, right? They cut the small plates of Nevi that cover the same time period. I think we all know the story. Yeah. You said Donna Hill. Were you thinking of Marvin? Oh, well, um, it was, uh, oh gosh, who was that? Somebody just put up here something about Donna Hill. I think there were a couple of them going on at the same time, but whoever it was uh, had titled that chapter, the convenient revelation. Mm. And I remember that just the title of that bothered me. Yeah. Yeah. There's it enough things seem, to bother us, isn't there? It, it did seem pretty convenient, didn't it? Yeah. Have yeah. you gone to mm. his next book in the series? Extensions uh, of Power? Extensions of Power, which moves kind of beyond the origin of the church and goes into the more modern day leadership of the church. Yep. Got this book as well. Thank you. And uh, I didn't, I, I loved it. I didn't love it as much as the origins of power, but it became very clear reading this that, Mormon leadership and how prophetic mantle, the prophetic mantle works 
was a lot more messy than the story I had in my head about how it worked mm-hmm. and how clean and innocent and good these men are, how, how easy it is for them to just talk face to face to God and get answers. Um, D Michael Quinn, you know, obviously he's passed away, but he's left a, uh, a deep mark on Mormonism through his, uh, his historical research and his work inside the church history library. One could even say he's left a name and a fame that cannot be slain. You're right. He never he never did get ordained an apostle, did he? No, unfortunately for was it the patriarch who gave him that blessing? Or was Spencer it Spencer Kimball? Kimball? That's right. Spencer Kimball. Better than hands on his head, said he would be an apostle, he would be a special witness of Jesus Christ someday. I imagine that's based on his faithfulness. Yeah. Leonard Arrington in the writing of Mormon history. This is Gregory Prince. This is a, a newer one. There's an older book about Leonard Arrington. Um, yeah, that is Adventures that. as a Church Historian, the one he wrote yep. himself, which was a great book as well. And that's the book where uh, Devery Anderson found me that source of uh, the women going out and buying new underwear. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, because that was back in the 1920s or 30s when word came down that the uh, the temple garments were only going to have to be worn inside the temple. Therefore, they were free to yeah. put on their uh, underwear of their choice yeah. outside the temple. As crazy as an idea as that sounds. And is, then they found this, out that it was premature. Yeah. Is this the spot where you wanted to show that little Yes, uh, because document? I put it up. Um, I was digging through things and finding as many of these books that were on your list as I could. You came up with the main list. I added a couple things to it at the end. But yes, and I remember finding this, and I still had it marked, and I put it up on the Facebook page. And I want to just go ahead and read this, because this is from Leonard Arrington's diary from 41 years ago today. Today is July 6, 2022. This was a diary entry from July 6, 1981. Also, uh, historically speaking, this is right around the time when he is being forced to close up shop because they're going to move him down to BYU as part of closing down his um, being the church historian. I believe he was released without a vote of thanks. But this is what he wrote on that day. So this is just Leonard Arrington, still church historian at the time, I believe, writing in his own personal diary to which Gregory Prince, the author of the book, had access in which he quotes here, Leonard Arrington writing, quote, What is most disturbing is the apparent feeling on the part of some that we are letting some historical cats out of the bag. What they ought to realize, and he's talking about some church leaders, obviously, what they ought to realize is that the cats have been out of the bag long before we came in in 1972, and that our efforts, notice this, and that our efforts have been to try to minimize the historical impact of those unfavorable facts and to put the lid on other facts that can be found by intense study of archival material that would damage the church and all its officers, period, end of quote. All of its officers. So, so there's several things that stick out to me. Mm. He he notices or he notes that the general public or people in the general public are complaining that they're releasing um, 
the, the, the transparent, messy history. They're trying to be transparent about the messy history. And he says, look, that stuff's already out. It's been our job to try to minimize the impact of that. And, and as you point out, and to put the lid on other facts. Now, these facts aren't known by the some that are talking about the first set of facts, right? They're uh, feeling on part of some that we're let, that we are letting some historical cats out of the bag. He admits those cats were already out of the bag, but he's acknowledging that him and everyone else at the church, there are other cats that are still in the bag that, uh, that can only be discovered by intense study of our archival material that would damage the church and all of its officers. He admits by the word our, that he's playing a part in this, right? Um, and it seems to be the straightforward meaning to me. Yeah. And when he talks about this second set of things, these are things that the that the people wouldn't have been mentioning as cats out of the bag. These are things that are still in the bag. It, it seems because they can be found. I'm sorry. I'm going to add to that because I think you're right. Because these other cats, the bad cats, the really big, nasty cats, are cats or facts that can be found, in his words, by intense study of archival material. Who has he, access to the archival material? He and his staff did at the time. It was unprecedented, the access Can Dan had. Vogel get access to the archival material? I don't know. I'll have to let him ask, uh, answer for himself since he's in the live chat. Please, My guess Dan. is no. Yeah. In other words, there are still things in the archival material, at least as of this diary entry. Yes that would damage the entire church and its entire leadership. Um, probably going back all the way in time, huh? Well, I do not know. It is a tantalizing diary entry. And I wish that he had delineated what it was he was talking about. Because here in Greg Prince's autobiography, he does not examine that statement at the end. All he does is use this as one of a host of quotes from the diaries of Leonard Arrington, that the leadership of the church is trying to shut down his attempts to be more transparent about the church's history. He doesn't talk about whether Leonard Arrington is admitting to being a part of the cover-up by helping to put the lid on those other facts that Leonard Arrington apparently thinks would damage the church and all its officers. Yeah. Um, there by are the way, things that I, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, no, Bill. Go ahead. just for those who are listening, this is uh Leonard Arrington and the writing of Mormon history. That is the name of the biography of Leonard Arrington written by Greg Prince. That's page yeah. 358. Page 358. I'll put that in the notes there. Um, some things have come out of the archival. Uh, things stored in the archives since the writing of this journal entry, you know, uh, the council of 50 minutes being one of them, but one has to imagine there's still uh, a significant handful of things that the church wouldn't want anyone to know even is in there, including those eight leaves from the 1832 uh, account of Joseph Smith's uh, personal journal, right? Right. At the end of letter book one, exactly. Yeah. Those, those yeah. eight, uh, eight pages, eight leaves, we should say 16 pages front and back being two pages. Yeah. yeah, 16 pages, eight leaves missing from that, which have never been accounted for. And according to the church historians are not there to be found anymore. They have no idea as to what it is that happened to them. But at this point, honestly, my concern is 
that the church has and its leaders have given me no reason, excuse me, they have given me every reason to believe that they have hidden documents and information in the past, which makes me think that they would probably be continuing to do so to the degree that they are able to. And they have given me zero reason to believe that they are completely transparent in spite of their protestations to the contrary. There's this idea that the church is hiding something, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time. All of its offices. There has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Okay, so that was a really good quote to play with that diary entry on the screen. Yeah, yeah, just came to me just suddenly. <laughs> um, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, another book by Greg Prince. I read this book and uh, kind of interesting. It was not too long after I read it uh, that I started uh, the podcast originally back in 2012. And I think in 2013, I went to lunch with Greg Prince out in Marblehead, uh, Ohio. He came to Ohio. Little did I know, uh, good friends of his were good friends of mine in our in our, my ward in Ohio, but it was a summer home for them. They would come to the summer and stay in uh, Lakeside, Ohio. And he would come to visit them, but I didn't connect the dots. I just knew he was coming to Ohio and he wanted to go to lunch with me. And so we went to lunch. I found out sometime later that he came to Ohio to visit my friends. If I would have known that, I think I would have got a chance to hang out with him a little more often. So that is too bad. I will tell you that I don't have that book with me, but I did read that book. It was a gift to me for my son for Christmas. Can't remember, but I believe it was a gift, but I did read it with great interest. It covers a period of church history that has been largely neglected, which is basically from Brigham Young up through, I don't know, today. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, everybody talks about uh, Joseph Smith and a lot of people talk about Brigham Young and all that time period. But when we get into the early part of the 20th century and the mid part of the 20th century, it's largely crickets. So this was very interesting to me to find out what was going on behind the scenes with Bruce R. McConkie and Mormon doctrine, as well as the priesthood ban and the issues surrounding that and where they could and could not take the missionaries in Africa prior to the lifting of the ban because of the ban. Yeah. My favorite part of this book, I I think it was in this book. It's either like Eugene England or Sterling McMurrin or one of those guys. And they were going to get called into a disciplinary court by, I think Joseph Fielding Smith and uh, one of the other hardliners. And David O. McKay said, if they drag you in, I'll be your first witness. And the whole thing got dropped. I think that was Sterling McMurrin. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. It it became clear to me that while David O. McKay had his own racist leanings and he had his own unhealthy things that he did, he he generally was much softer than the rest of the brethren in the in the top fifteen. Uh, him and Hubie Brown seemed to have been kind of a nice buffer uh, for a lot of those leaders at that time by kind of softening up a little bit of that sharp edge. Mm, yes, but uh, and I, I find Greg Print. You know, Greg is been kind of an advocate for Paul H. Dunn as well. And I respect Greg Greg immensely. Greg seems to be a guy who really wants to be fair to everybody. And I I think he treats this material really well. He was an advocate for Paul H. Dunn? Yeah. um, Greg Prince um, 
was with Paul H. Dunn in his last few years trying to put together a biography, I think, for of Paul H. Dunn. And he acknowledges all of Paul H. Dunn's mistakes, but every time I've heard him speak on the subject, he has pleaded with us on the critical side of Mormonism to be kind and forgiving to Paul H. Dunn, which I find to be pretty interesting. Well, it is. And I think that everybody should be kind and forgiving to Paul H. Dunn, as well as most other people yeah. who have done things that are wrong or regretful, remembering that we have done the same things and none of us has a clean slate yeah. in that regard. On the other hand, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to forget the fact that church leaders can and have made up miraculous stories involving God's intervention that upon further examination turned out to be not true. Yeah, I was just going to look up uh, one of those, um, but I don't have it. Oh, here it is. Mormonism Live number 33. Look at that. Oh, President, President Nelson's, Nelson's <laughs> Flight, Flight of, of death. death. That was a fun one. That that one is probably my favorite episode we've done to date. I'm going to probably go back and listen to that one again uh, sometime soon. All right, David O. McKay, Rise of Modern Mormonism. This one's a recent one. Paul Reeve, um, Religion of a Different Color, Race in the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness. Uh, he really dives into the cultural aspects of Mormons see people outside of Mormonism seeing Mormons as an ethnicity and being racist towards them, even though they were white. There was lots of caricatures that would say they look different than the other white people around. And he is the gentleman who wrote the long version of the race and priesthood essay that was then condensed down. And if I remember in, in an interview he did, maybe with the, um, oh, what's the name of it? Gospel something that uh, it's a podcast. Tangents. Um, yeah, Gospel Tangents. And I think in that conversation, Paul intimated that uh, he wasn't as thrilled about what they took out and whatnot, but that he was the one who wrote the long version of that essay. And I think, you know, when it comes to race and priesthood, this is one of the important books to read to understand that issue um, in its context. There is an even shorter version of that essay the church released the other day. Uh, it's three words long. I don't know if you heard about it, Bill. The three words are, Mormons aren't racist. No. Even, That's the short even, version of the essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, and it, it probably the member's fault. <laughs> Mormons have never been racist. That's a little bit longer. Yeah. Oh, LDS temple worship. We did something yep. about that recently, didn't you? Yeah, we talked about garments and we used this book uh, a little bit in that episode. Devery Anderson, I think he did a beautiful job. This book's about, what, two inches thick? Mm, yes. Yeah. Fantastic book. If you want to know every single change, the conversations that went into the changes, how they started off with things not being uh, able to be altered, excuse me. And, uh, and then, and then going ahead and, and altering it. Yeah. Um, this book is a fantastic book to understand all the changes that have happened in the temple uh, ordinances since its beginning inception. So he covers 1846 to 2000. Any thoughts on that one? Uh, no, I know we went over just the part about garments yeah. recently, but there's probably no part of temple worship and ritual that has not been changed. It's all been altered, even though it was unalterable, straight from God. But they still have altars. Yeah, the they still have altars. Even so it's not completely unalterable. Alter yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'll be here all week. <laughs>
All right. In Sacred Loneliness, Todd Compton. Um, I just recently got the book. I read a little bit of it years ago. I, I borrowed it from a library. But he goes through and talks about all of the plural wives, like their individual stories, and the trauma just mounts up one after the other as he goes through and shows their journal entries, the testimonies they gave at the Temple Lot case, um, uh, diary entry, you know, all the kinds of things that, that the sources are left behind on. And you can just see that it is manipulation and predatory behavior uh, in at least a dozen of these instances. And there's just a lot of trauma handed out to the early sisters of the church as Joseph Smith was trying to practice some form of polygamy that was something other than up, upstanding and, uh, and honest. Yeah. Uh, anything huge, from that one? A hugely important book. That would be another one that I have not read yet. Yeah. I haven't read most of that one either. Um, Insider's view of Mormon origins, uh, Grant Palmer. Uh, there's always this argument that uh, people, Whenever somebody challenges the Book of Mormon, a member and the apologist stand up and go, look, you can pick at it all you want, but man, it's a miracle. Look at that book. I mean, how could he ever have written that book? And Grant Palmer is really the like the first guy in our general collective awareness that uh, made an attempt to go, here's where all the parts and pieces come from. And I think he's wrong on a thing or two. But I think generally speaking, he's onto something and he has laid out uh, lots of source material. Like, I don't agree with the golden pot per se. Does anyone? Uh, I'm not a, yeah. And I'm not a big fan. Of, <laughs> sorry. Obviously. No, he big, did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a big fan of like uh, the, you know, Comoros Islands and Captain Kidd. Um, but I would say about 90% of his book makes sense to me as I try to be rational thinking about it. Um, I, I think this was groundbreaking when this came out and this was sold in Deseret book for a little while as well. Wow. Yeah. But that was a mistake. Yeah. They pulled it at some point. Uh, Mormon enigma, Emma Hale, this said the two authors, Linda King Newell and Valine Tippett's Avery. Uh, these two sisters got into a lot of trouble when they, uh, published this book and they were kind of, um, blackballed from being able to do anything that had any kind of stamp of the churches. They wanted to get uh, awareness of their book out. And this book is, had made a huge impact on people understanding Emma side, because really up until this moment, and even still today, you hear whispers that Emma Smith was so bad for not staying in the church. It really is this book that starts to create a new narrative where Emma is not seen as bad. And today I think, the church, at least formally, tends to stay away from bad-mouthing Emma Smith. Um, and, and I think all the credit goes to this book for, for all that it did uh, to start to straighten out that perspective. Yes, and you're right about the, um, the issue that the two authors had. I think that at first they were able to talk about their book in church buildings, but that rapidly got shut down by the church leadership when they found out what they were saying. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it's unfortunate. Um, and that seems to happen a lot with different products that come out that tend to be much more honest and transparent about Mormon history. Um, but so be it. That's that's the game Mormonism wants to play. I guess it makes sense, though, that the Brighamite church would inherit Brigham Young's perspective and opinion yeah. about Emma. It, yeah, it would. It would need to, wouldn't it? 
Yeah. Oh, hey, look. This look at is that. my Charlie doctor. Harrell. Yeah. Um, he was on last week, wasn't he? Yes, Charlie Harrell was on last week. Uh, I interviewed him probably seven or eight years ago. Fantastic book. Uh, anybody wants to know how the church has changed on essentially every single doctrine, that's the book you need to read. Um, and it will lay out very clearly that uh, that that that's the case that this that things have changed and essentially everything has changed and so if that if you're into books this is one that I think needs to be on your shelf um, but great book yes and if anybody wants to hear from Charlie Harrell himself and you didn't catch last week's episode please go there the big uh, groundbreaking thing I thought was his current attitudes about the church yeah much. Uh, seems to be much less believing and certainly not active, right? Yes. Yeah. And yes. A, a lot of things can change when you no longer work for the church. Yes. Suddenly you have a, a certain degree of freedom you might not have had before. Right. Yeah. Next one is, I don't like the cover they're showing there. Maybe I can find a paperback that'll have a nicer cover. How about this But this one? is Mountain Meadows. Look at that. Mountain Meadows Massacre. We had that book for sale in our pawn shop. That's worth a little bit of money. Is that a first edition? Well, let me check here. Uh, and while I'm checking, you should tell me how much it's worth if it is. I know it depends uh, on I'm the condition. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about a hundred bucks. Are you, you should double that because I can sign it. Yeah, well, that would be cool. We could we could do that. We could auction off all of our books with our signatures in them. Yes, and that try would to be raise great. money that way. And then this we would have how, no library. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a, an original, but I did have a statement. I mean, a statement, a story. To Please. tell about this book, because I read this book about 20 years ago. And of course, I'd heard whisperings. It's like um, what Andrew Garfield in Under the Banner of Heaven. I've heard whisperings about blood atonement. But I've heard whisperings. Everybody's heard whisperings about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, many fewer people that have heard the whisperings actually know about it. I was one of those people. So I thought I should learn about this. And I read this book. It was about 20 years ago, as I say. I was totally traumatized is maybe too big a word, especially when you're comparing it with, you know, the victims of what actually happened. But I was definitely emotionally impacted seriously when I got to the end of this book, because what I had in my mind envisioned as the massacre was that the Mormons got together with the, um, the Paiutes and they killed all the settlers who were still in their um, their place of defense where they circled the wagons and they're trying to defend yeah. themselves. I had no idea that the, uh, the Mormons had gone to them under a white flag of truce and lured them out of their hiding place or their defensive position under promise of what? Uh, well, what was it Governor Ford said he would give to Joseph Smith? Um, safe conduct or he would vouch for his safety? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what they were doing. And then they end up and on a signal, every, every one of the men, the settlers, uh, has a Mormon man with a musket next to him. And on the signal, they blow their brains out and then yeah. they take care of all the women with clubs and whatever they needed to do that. I was yeah. shocked, absolutely shocked by that because it wasn't what I was expecting. It was so much worse than what I was expecting. And the thing that's really strange, I told you this was 20 years ago. I had trouble getting to sleep that night. The next morning, I got up early, got into the car, to head down to the office, turn on the radio, and both of the Twin Towers were down. Mm. Yeah, they they took the kids and placed them in the homes of members and then took the clothes off of the the people they had just killed. So now these children 
are with the assailants of their parents, right? Like these kids are staying in the community of the people who killed their parents. Right. And then the clothes were taken off of the families, the, the moms, the dads, the older kids that were killed, and then given to uh, various Mormons in, uh, in the Southern Utah community. And so not only did you have to live and be raised by the people who hurt your parents and killed them, but you also had to see your mom's dress being worn uh, by the neighbor down the street. And I, I can only imagine. And then to add to that, Brigham Young's uh, desecration and, and destroying of the monument or the marker uh, and all the language he gave to that. And then on top of that, Brigham, I think in 18, um, I want to say around 52, maybe 55, somewhere in there. Um, do you know what the year was of the Mountain Meadows Massacre? I don't, unfortunately. 57. Okay. So yeah, somewhere in there. Once Brigham knows that it is the church that did the murdering, it's the Mormons that did it, even years later, he is still blaming the Native Americans for that. And you can show in the documents that he knows by that point, but but he still wants to spread the story that it was the the indigenous people who did it. And so I, to this day, I really don't know how much Native American involvement there was, the Paiutes, you know, and uh, I highly doubt any stance the church takes on how much involvement there was by the indigenous people because we know the Mormons painted their faces and did most of the atrocity. Yes. Um, I will tell you that this is the problem that I have is the church has taught me to not trust it. Right. Right. A rational mind goes, the church is probably lying here because they've lied a thousand times before. Right. Or at least I've yeah. got to take it with a huge grain of salt. I cannot take it at face value. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe at some point we'll cover this Mountain Meadows massacre and talk about some of that stuff, but it is, uh, it's pretty heart wrenching. So Juanita Brooks, by the way, same as the Mormon Enigma book, Juanita Brooks got a lot of flack for publishing this book. People wouldn't sit by her in her ward anymore. Uh, she didn't get callings anymore. Uh, she was kind of ostracized, even though she was an active um, attending member. And she was really treated poorly. And I've I was in a ward with a uh, nep great nephew or nephew of hers, and he was sort of aware of the story. And but he he had been raised only with the faithful view, and he kind of saw his aunt as kind of missing the mark. Um, when in reality, this lady was so courageous and brave to to move forward and put this material out. And to straighten out the story, you know? Well, she was. And the problem is, of course, that the knee-jerk reaction of many members of the church is to hate and not sit next to the messenger yeah. instead of dealing with the message itself. Amen to that, right? Like, let's deal with the data. Let's not blame somebody who's shining a light on it. Liar, liar, pants on fire. All Your right. words, not mine. Right. Uh, <laughs> Carolyn oh, Pearson, mm -hmm. Goodbye, I Love You. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about this book? All I can say is that I read it. I don't have it with me right now, but I did read it, um, and I thought it was very moving. This is, of course, her story about her husband, who I believe's name was Gerald. Gerald, you got it. Okay, going from memory. And, of course, her finding out that he's gay 
And then I believe they ended up, uh, I think they got divorced, but she tended for with him and as he died of AIDS. I could be wrong about that. And if I am, please correct me. Uh, all I know is that she was with him during his last, uh, his last days and stood by him and with him. And that that was a hugely powerful event in Carolyn Pearson's life in changing her attitude about things related to the church and gay yeah. people. Yeah, I, I know so many people at this point who f- had feelings of being attracted, being gay, being attracted to the other, to the same gender, sorry, the same gender, and but did the good Mormon thing and ended up marrying the same or the opposite gender and then went, you know, a decade into a marriage, 15 years into a marriage, in some cases, 20 years into a marriage. And finally, just it was just miserable for them and they got divorced and, and finally found uh real love um, where they felt attraction and could build a real lifetime commitment with somebody. And, and all of that, it goes much easier when you feel attracted to the person you're interested in, you know, and that you marry. And uh, this book, uh, such a way before it's time and kind of sharing that kind of uh, eye opening um, uh, awareness of, of, people who kind of get stuck in doing things the Mormon way only to realize that's not really how the real world works. This is one of the few books I've read in my life that made me cry. Yeah. By the way, Bill, on this cover that you have on the screen, there's a rose there in the left side of the cover, but then there's a shadow of the rose, which is something different. What is that shadow? Can you tell? Yeah, I, I, it looks like it's broken there at the stem and maybe it's dying or something. I don't know what's going on there. Hmm. Um, um, There's some I'll... message being communicated. I just yeah. can't tell exactly what it is from here. Yeah. But a, an incredible book and, you know, for Carolyn to, to f- handle it the way she did it, it pretty damn admirable um, because her church taught her to think about all of this a different way. And, and, and once she, you know, dealing with it head on with somebody she knows and loves her ability to have empathy and compassion and understanding um, and to write a book, trying to help the rest of us figure it out. Um, I just, man, kudos to her for her bravery and uh, the love that she had for that man to, to paint his life the right way. Yeah, in many ways, I think of Carolyn Pearson as the poet laureate of Mormonism. Yeah. And I I believe and I wish and I think that she should receive a lot more recognition from the church as an institution than she does. Instead of the other poet that uh, early on in the church that we give a lot of... Eliza? To. Yeah. Eliza Snow? Yeah. She so was a hack. Snow. Yeah. I'll get in trouble for that one. I know. <laughs> Let me just, yeah. I'm, I'm more impressed by Carolyn Pearson than I am by Eliza R. Snow. It's a matter Amen. of taste. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Greg Prince, another book by him, gay rights and the Mormon church intended actions, unintended, uh, unintended consequences. Uh, I have this book. I've read a little bit of it. I haven't read the whole thing, but I'm well aware that this book is trying to open up the church's eyes around this issue in the same way, and I, I should have had his name on handy because I wasn't ready to say this, but um, the gentleman who wrote on the race and priesthood issue that the general authorities were influenced by. Reeve. Do you remember? Reeve? No, no, no. Oh, no, no. no you're going time. back to 1973. I am. Dialogue article by. Yep, that guy. So somebody will put it here in the in the comments. 
Um, if you think of it, name it. But he, I, I just know Wayne while this Brady. was being, I know while this being written, that there were lots of comparisons made, and that if the brethren could just understand the data and context of the LGBT issue in the same way that they had to have their eyes opened. Um, to the race and priesthood issues. Uh, somebody put Stuart Udall. That's not who it is, though. No, it is. Um, Interesting story there, too, though. Well, where are we? There are too many things there that are showing up. Yeah. But, and, the, and usually this is always one of those names that I have difficulty coming up with. Yep. And Leroy Lester. It's not Leroy. Lester it's Bush. Lester Bush Jr. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Nailed it. So Lester Bush had a huge impact with the uh, race and priesthood. And, and I think Gregory Prince's book is trying to do the same thing with the LGBT issue, but deeply influential. Can I mention something here since we're talking about um, this very important article by Lester yeah. Bush, Mormonism's yeah. Negro Doctrine, colon, and historical overview. Uh, the list that we're doing tonight has to do with books, which by its definition leaves out the individual papers which have been so important in Mormonism. Yeah. And this is one of them, Lester Bush. There's also a collection here in this book, which is relatively recent. It's called Producing Ancient Scripture. I was talking mm -hmm. with Brent Metcalf and he thought that this was a very important book. It is not written by anybody. It has, well, it's not written by any single person is what I mean. Obviously somebody wrote it, but it has three editors, Michael Hubbard McKay, Mark Ashurst McGee, and our good friend, Brian Halglid were the editors, but it's a collection of, papers covering all the different translation projects that Joseph Smith was engaged in, in his career. And I have not read all these, but I've read several and I hope to read all of them before too long because it's really, really good stuff. Excellent. So yeah, Lester Bush certainly moved the needle and the general authorities in their private writings, a few of them acknowledged as much, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, here's one. We'll mention Dan Vogel, one of the... Who? One of the Dan Vogel, you don't, have you ever heard is of he, him? No, is he an up-and-comer or something? He, yeah, he's an up-and-comer, just a just an amateur historian who doesn't know a whole lot, but produced a thing or two, you know? He's read a couple but, of good books. Yeah, he's yeah, he's no dodo. <laughs> Mormonism Unveiled, Eber D. Howe, but this edition, which I have on my shelf, with critical comments by Dan Vogel, um, the, the Mormonism Unveiled on its own, not to be confused, by the way, with Mormonism Unveiled spelled a different way, which was written by John D. Lee, I believe. Um, instead, here we're talking about U-N-V-A-I-L-E-D instead of V-E-I-L-E-D. Um, this particular one is the Eber D. Howe, where Philastrius Hurlbut goes to collect all the affidavits in uh, Joseph Smith's hometown. Uh, in this particular edition, which I, I really love, and I read this all the way through when I got it uh, about two years ago, year ago or so, year and a half ago, two years ago, and uh, Dan Vogel adds critical comments along the way, and I think it's really well done. Another thing I didn't put in here, but I just want to note, Dan Vogel, um, History of the Church, I, I forget what the full name is. He'll he'll probably write it in before I get this typed out. Um, see if I can find it really quick. Uh, yeah, as you're looking, I'll just say that Dan Vogel has produced so many important books related to mormonism there's the making of a prophet his biography of joseph smith there are his collections of mormon documents yeah early mormon documents yes which are absolutely phenomenal and phenomenal and in fact according to brent metcalf there are a number of documents that dan vogel has in that those volumes that 
are not, repeat, not contained in the Joseph Smith Papers project. And one of the reasons is because the, the definition of what the Joseph Smith Papers project puts in their Joseph Smith Papers is a little more narrow than what it is that Dan Vogel's putting into his books. But I also understand that the Joseph Smith Papers projects have cited to Dan's books on occasion for yeah. those other documents that he has found and which are not, what, what is that $1,000? Did Dan Vogel just make a $1,000 donation? Of Mormonism no, 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 life? no, no. This is oh. the eight volume set history of Joseph Smith and the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Dan, please correct me. But I think what Dan did was take the multi-volume uh, history of the church that BH Roberts uh, comprised and went back into it and essentially like straightens out some of the historical data points, tries to correct things, adds his own, um, I don't want to say commentary, but he's essentially trying to go like, here's the record, but let's be more thorough and let's try to be more factual of what's going on in, inside those. And it, I don't know that it's a thousand bucks. We have a set at our pawn shop. I don't know that's a thousand bucks, but it's not cheap. It's a, it's a big deal. Well, Dan is a big deal. Yeah. And by the way, it is a huge, I consider it a huge feather in our cap that he is a regular watcher of Mormonism live. There he is. Dan doesn't have a thousand dollars. That's the comment mm. that Dan just put up on the screen. Actually, you probably put it up on the screen, but Dan I, I put made it up it. there, but yeah, but Dan Dan made it. So he can't even afford his own books. Um the the Mormonism Unveiled was interesting because you and I were taught that those guys were just collecting false statements by the neighbors. When we go back and read it, it's pretty good. I'm not going to say it's perfect, but it was a whole lot more factual and truthful than the church was telling us. I think that that was the, um, the collection of documents that Hugh Nibley did his book, the myth makers on, I think, because mm. okay. I got that one. I have no idea where it is now. When I got it, it was out of print. And that was a long time ago. Um, go ahead and mention this one. These are the next few are ones that um, you had added in and, and certainly think these are important as well. So I'm glad you drew my attention to these, but the Joseph Smith Egyptian papyri by Robert Rittner. Right. Well, this is one of the problems of doing a list is invariably you're going to leave out somebody important. And uh, we almost left out Robert Rittner, if you can believe it. So yeah. we added this in today and I thought, oh, my gosh, Robert Rittner, we've got to include him. Here's his book, The Joseph Smith Egyptian Papyri. We've also included a paper that is still available and will probably will be forever on the Oriental Institute's website. Translation and Historicity of the Book of Abraham, a response. So that was Robert Rittner's response to the church's essay on the translation and historicity of the Book of Abraham. That's why it's titled that way. And that's his response to it. That's a little bit shorter and easier to grapple with, I think, for a layperson coming yeah, in. Yeah, I never issue. I never read the book here, but I've read that article at least four times. Uh, three of those as a believer trying to make sense of the book of Abraham. And I just couldn't get past what Robert Rittner was saying. It, it He seems so logical and rational about the problems in the book of Abraham that from that point forward, I couldn't quite make sense or reconcile that issue. Mm. Yes. Well, it is kind of irreconcilable, I think. Well, it's yeah. reconcilable in one direction. How's that? Yeah as seen by our episode on the kinderhook plates. Yeah, exactly. Very good. 
What? Oh, so do I have anything else here? Yeah, yeah I have CES another thing. Letter? I was going to talk. Oh, the CES letter. It's a book. Yeah, it's a so book, it does and count. I thought we can't leave that out. A lot of people say this book is the book. This is the work that got them to think critically about the church and to step away. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder if they took the church gospel topics essay and made it into a book. Which of the two would lead more people away from the church? Yeah. Those essays have done some damage too, haven't they? Oh my gosh. It's it's up there. It's like in the top three. CS letters up there. The church essays are up there. And I'm not sure what else. Probably Robert Rittner. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned this one, Lost Christianities, the Battles for Scripture and Faiths We Never Knew, Bart Ehrman. I did. I put that up here. Here's mine. See? Similarity? Yes. By Bart Ehrman. He's written a lot of things. And it was very influential for me. And one of the main things that happened with me is I was studying early Christianity, or as he put it, early Christianities, that... Um, what I was learning about in the development of Christianity seemed to have direct application to my study of the development of Mormonism. Yeah, no. And um, the book for me was Reza Aslan's book, Zealot, where he goes in and shows that Jesus was just a, a Jewish rebellious, you know, zealot essentially. And that um, he, he tackles the same information that Bart Ehrman does, did, does but it just struck me when I read that book that I, I really do believe I might have deconstructed Jesus before I deconstructed Mormonism. Hmm. Um, and so this book, I know, you know, I'm very aware of Bargerman and lots of his work. I've listened to him do interviews on tons of podcasts. I've listened to uh, some of his own audio programs that he's done. Um, I, I think the guy is brilliant and thorough, and I think he makes a solid argument. Yes, and this was so interesting. I'm not going to go into this book except to say that it had been proposed a number of decades ago, and I can't remember by whom, that Mormonism was a great opportunity to observe the development of a Christian religion in real time, in contemporary times, in a time of lots of records, Mormonism, right? And that that could give us a lot of insight into the development of early Christianity, I think that when I heard that the first time, it was said in such a way that I thought that was a good thing and that the development of Christianity would help strengthen my understanding and testimony of the development of Mormonism, right? If they're similar and if Christianity is true, then Mormonism would be true insofar as it parallels that development or could be true. But unfortunately, it was the reverse that happened, which is I saw how Christianity developed and there were problems there and issues there aplenty. And I could see replicated those same problems and issues in the development of Mormonism, one of which was I had thought without any investigation, but I just naturally thought that if you're going to have a tradition in a religion that becomes accepted as a verifiable fact of history, that's going to take decades and decades, if not centuries, for that to happen. And then I found out with the transfiguration of Brigham Young that it took maybe 10 years, 20 years tops for that to become an established incident in LDS history. And it never happened. That's the thing. It never happened. Or at least to put it a little more carefully, there are no contemporaneously recorded statements of people who were present on August 8th, 1844, when Brigham Young gave that sermon that say anything about Brigham Young sounding like Joseph Smith, that say anything about Brigham Young looking like Joseph Smith, 
In fact, there's nothing to indicate that anything weird or unusual happened. And it's only a number of years later that the story starts popping up, then it gets repeated, and then people begin remembering it, that they were present when this happened. And then you even have, I think it was um, Orson Hyde, who remembered being present and testified. I think he's actually the first person that I remember finding who mentions it in general conference in Salt Lake City, that he was present, he testified, he heard the voice of Joseph Smith when Brigham Young taught, he saw Joseph Smith's face when Brigham Young taught. Unfortunately, the historical record is that Orson Hyde was not even in Nauvoo on August 8th, 1844, when Brigham Young gave that address. Yeah, I think he uh, might be still coming back from his mission. And uh, on top of that, I think the second guy who reported it was John D. Lee in his, uh, in some statement, and he wasn't in town that day either. So the first two people who mentioned that event weren't there. Right. So there's this whole idea of remembering things that you weren't present to experience. And yeah. this isn't to say that they're not saying it in good faith. I'm not there to judge that. I'm, I'm certainly here to say that psychologically speaking, people can and have remembered or had recollections of things that they never experienced that they are fabrications that were created in one way or another in their own mind, whether intentionally or unintentionally, whether consciously or subconsciously. Yeah. And as a lawyer, I mean, you'll, you'll get this, but eyewitnesses are treated as kind of the highest level of evidence yeah. uh, in, in legal matters. And the reality is memory is so flawed that they really shouldn't be the highest, um, the highest form of evidence in a legal case. Right. I'll just say parenthetically, since you brought it up, and I appreciate you bringing it up, is that the Innocence Project, which has gone around with DNA and been able to try and figure out people who are convicted, serving life sentences, usually for horrendous uh, crimes of which they've been convicted at trial, um, going back with DNA evidence and finding people who are wrongfully convicted, absolutely wrongfully convicted based upon the DNA evidence. And the fact is that the majority of those people that science tells us now were wrongfully convicted, were convicted on the basis of eyewitness testimony. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so there's that one. View of the Hebrews. Yes, I brought, it, I brought up View of the Hebrews because I think it was very important to me to realize, oh, how funny. The tribes of Israel, who wrote that? I don't know. Okay. It says Ethan, that's Ethan Smith, but I don't know who added the extra thing onto it. I think Carrie Schertz has been writing these for Amazon. That's a terrible thing for me to say because <laughs> it was based on something that happened very early on in the live chat when he misspelled something. Gotcha. And I made fun of him because I said it was a COVID symptom. Anyway, sorry about that. I've misspelled things too in my life. But the thing about View of the Hebrews is that it paints the picture, not of necessarily the source from which Joseph Smith plagiarized the Book of Mormon, but it gives us the entire background against which the Book of Mormon was written. And it's a very dry book. I did a, um, oh, an interview with John DeLynn. I read the book. And I say it that way because it was a bit of a task and a bit of a chore to read the book. But I did it because I had this interview with John DeLynn on the book. And when you look at what was believed by so many Americans at the time, that there was indeed a white race that was responsible for the technology of building all of these earthen mounds and technologically advanced sorts of structures in the Americas, which the colonists believed could not have been done by the, um, the Native Americans or their ancestors. So they hypothesized a white race, a superior race that had been lost. 
and had been killed by the ancestors of the American Indians, leaving only the American Indians left. Um, when you understand that that was something that was prevalent at the time, then you can understand, number one, why it was that the Joseph, why it was the Book of Mormon was so readily received by so many people, because it was telling a story that they already believed. Kent, if you're going to start a religion, it's best to do it based upon what people already accept is true, because you're going to get a lot more people believing it and following it and joining up. But also because it was the framework that is the overarching narrative of the Book of Mormon itself. And yes, this was around well before the Book of Mormon came off the press in 1830, before it was dictated in 1829. <laughs> and if you don't like that book, there's this other book called um, The Mound Builder Myth. Mm. It came out a couple years ago in 2020. Yeah. And I just want to read, it's called the, the Mound Builder Myth, Fake History and the Hunt for a Lost White Race. This is exactly what it's about. On the back, I just want to read this one sentence so you can understand. I don't believe that this is a, a member of the church. I don't know that it has any relationship with Mormonism, although Mormonism certainly figures in its pages because the LDS church profited from this conspiracy theory that was created by the colonists. The Mound Builder myth is the first book to chronicle the attempt to recast the Native American burial mounds as the work of a lost white race of true Native Americans. That's from the blurb on the back. That's what this book is about. And if that sounds like the Book of Mormon to any of you, then I think you need to investigate this further. You you felt like, and I, I agree with you, by the way, I've tried to get through the view of the Hebrews. And I just can't. But it's not a great written story. It's not a it's not a compelling book. It's not a story. And that's one of the reasons. It's a treatise where gotcha. Ethan Smith in 1826, I believe it was, I think there Puts were a couple of versions. Argument. Yeah, he's putting forth the argument and he's saying, here's all this evidence that supports the idea that the Native Americans here were Jewish people. They have uh, Hebrew ancestry, hence the idea, hence the title of you of the Hebrews, right? That they came over from the old world. They have all of these Jewish, ancient Jewish trappings, customs, traditions. And also there is this white race that's no longer with us anymore. But mainly it's about the idea that the Native American Indians were Hebrew in origin. And if that sounds like the Book of Mormon, yeah, then you should investigate that. I just wanted to note that the Book of Mormon isn't a great story either. I mean, the reason you and I read it a bunch of times is because we were commanded to read it a bunch of times, and we wanted to know Mormonism really well. We wanted to remember the important scriptures and be able to use them and recall them and have them influence our lives yeah. But if we weren't part of a religion that held that book up and we just want to read it, I know now that it was just kind of a shitty book, right? Like, did you did you feel that way or no? Maybe you're going to counter me here. You think it's an um, amazing story. I think it is remarkable in many ways, and it is also not remarkable in many ways. It's a mixed bag. There are some parts of it that I think are admirable laudatory amazing even but there are other would the narrative would the narrative have held your attention if you no. weren't reading it with any religious pressure to read it no way no no not a chance I mean, you know shakespeare inside now right the book of mormon really is chloroform in print when when understood um simply on the value of its narrative being enticing and keeping your attention 
Yeah, it, it has trouble there, <laughs> yeah, okay. at least for me. But, I mean, who can blame Moroni and Mormon and Nephi? They're, it wasn't their job to write a great book. Right, right. And so and the Book of Mormon is similar to Joseph Smith's Revelations, where you have such a disparity. You've got uh, section, oh, you've got section uh, 76 with three degrees of glory. And that is kind of uh, remarkable. You've also got that letter from Liberty Jail, three excerpts from which are put in sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, 121, 22, and 23, I think. But in the Doctrine and Covenants, you've also got 132 about plural marriage. And you've also got, oh, is it, which one is it? I can't remember, but it's the one about identifying, you know, spirits from angels. You'll pull my finger method of discernment. And you look at that and you go, how does, how does, how does that come from the same mind as section 76 or section 121? It's remarkable, but it's a fact. Joseph Smith could produce really amazing things and he could produce really not amazing things. Yeah, totally. Much appreciated. Um, all right. So view of the Hebrews, a uh, couple other just honorable mentions. I'll go through these really quick. Council of 50, a documentary history. Um, you really begin to understand the violent undertones in Mormonism when you see how that council operated and acted. There are several biographies on Brigham Young. Um, my personal favorite is the one by John Turner. Um, uh, Mormon Church and Blacks, a documentary history. This was Matthew Harris uh, and Newell Bringhurst. I'd interviewed Newell, I don't know, seven or eight years ago um, about that book, but it goes through essentially all of the, the history kind of showing how everything moved from point to point, who taught what, what things were said. So it's a really great book for that purpose. But there are other books written about that issue as well that were really good. Lost Legacy. Um, this was a book about all the patriarchs in the church. This is where we get the story about Joseph Fielding Smith, who not the president of the church, but the patriarch of the church, who was believed to be homosexual and was kind of ostracized uh, and sent to faraway places. And uh, it also talks a little bit about uh, Eldred G. Smith and his um, essentially being the last guy and how that was taken away from him. So that's a cool book as well. And that was the last one I had. Any other thing else from you? Well, there was a certain book that was featured in a red Ooh, cover yeah. recently in a Hulu series. I think it was episode six, maybe it was five, in a garage somewhere. Spider-Man yeah, was yeah. reading this. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Spider-Man was reading it. His, his spider senses were tingling. Oh, my gosh. They were totally tingling. You could tell. He was having a tough... I was just grateful for the scene so Andrew Garfield could actually have a chance to act somewhere during that show. But, yeah. yes, more... more <laughs> Mormonism, uh, Shadow or Reality by Gerald and Sandra Tanner. And we almost forgot to include this. You see, this is one of the perils, right? Who, who are you going to forget? And uh, there's a big uh, new book, a biography of Gerald and Sandra that is just coming out yeah. now, I think. Yeah, yeah. I saw a post to this morning or yesterday. Somebody got like the first book out of her first box that she got delivered to her office. And that was kind of cool. Don't forget this incredible work. Oh, this yes. is monument. I'm just teasing. I, I wrote this to kind of be a soft CES letter. Mm -hmm. um, I call it the Mormon primer, Thank but you, you can call it the Mormon primer if you no, want to. You can't and be correct. At game or uh, infants on thrones, Glenn Oslin and I get into a debate about what it should be pronounced as, but it's I am but the Mormon grammar Nazi. 
I'm the I'm the lead uh, author of this, along with the help of the general ex Mormon community. But I tried to just write a little soft uh, uh, CES letter. You can go to each one and click the issue. It gives a faithful, critical, apologetic, and reconciled view. Mm -hmm. um, and I I really wanted to try to help people see the issues from all sides because I think even when you do that, the critic wins. Um, so the Mormon primer, but that really wasn't part of this. That was just me joking. So no, no, you have done so much work, Bill. It is easy for me to forget how much work you've done in this area. And that's just one of those things. And I, I don't know if anybody else remembers it. I remembered it, but only when you brought it up. I've forgotten it so many times only to remember it. So, <laughs> uh, but thank you. I appreciate it. Anything else from you? Those are, those are a bunch of, but I mean, if you've got all those on your shelf and you've read two thirds of those, it's a great way to know the messiness of Mormonism, but it looks like you got one more there in your hand. No, this is the same one. This is oh. one of the biggest books. You know, this is a big Twinkie. This uh, Mormonism shadow reality comes complete with photographs. Yeah. See that? The one piece garment and the temple robes. Yeah. And it tells think, you the temple endowment, right? Um, I that's don't my know. My father-in-law kept it. So I think it's. Oh, well, that's right. That's right. That was a great story. And when you, you think of the, the signs and tokens, these are each page is in two columns. This is uh, just a massive book. And I'm not sure. I think this may be one that was produced on their mimeograph. Mm. That is so cool. Again, those two have done so much to try to get all the data out there so people could make informed decisions. Um, they were killing it before, long before there was ever even a potential for people doing podcasts. And they did the, the work the hard way, right? Copiers and trying to trying to get that information into print sheets and hand them out and mail them to people. And I just, I can't imagine trying to do what we do today without the internet. And so everybody knows I haven't actually done this yet, but I was thinking about reaching out to Sandra and seeing if she would come on the show again, mm -hmm. because I think that there would be a really interesting story that she has to tell. And that would be the story behind the publication of this new biography. Ooh, I would, yeah, I would love that. That would be awesome. So hopefully that happens. Folks, if, uh, I, because I'm running this, I didn't get a chance to do the call studio. So I'm going to try to do that here really quick. Do you want me to um, read the numbers? Yeah, go ahead and do that. Let me try to find the call studio here somewhere. And uh, if, yeah, if you can buy me a moment or two, that'd be great. Okay, well, it just kind of went by. <laughs> I was going to read it. Here we go. Okay, so it's coming back around. If you look at the banner below join mormonism live by calling 662 mormons or 662-667-6667 international callers via the web and um you can do that by call in studio.com backslash <laughs> backslash show backslash mormons all right so if you want to call in with any suggestions that you have about books that you should read. By the way, if you put all these books on your shelf, Bill, it's going to break. These are too many. Oh my gosh, they're having an earthquake in St. George. I don't know what's going on, but right now you're seeing why it is that we miss Maven so much. So anyway, if you I was, put just, all I was just saying I've got those. Those are my shelves. Uh, you know, they're, you they're not broken this? yet. Is this what I you're doing, away... Bill? Are you going back to fist? We can do that if we need to. I don't. Okay, I, don't I don't think so. That's it's the six six two six six seven six 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 seven, and there's already uh, looks like two calls in the oh screening. Gosh. 
I hope one of them is Dan Vogel. That'd be great if Dan wants to call and tell us maybe what his most formative book was. And I got to fix that now. All right. So I think I'm actually going to pull the caller up before they get done doing the screening. So let's see how this goes. Okay. Caller, caller, I'm uh, I'm grabbing you away from the automatic screener. You're already on Mormonism Live. What's the name? It's fine. Uh, my name is Adam. Adam um, says here you've got a recommendation of a book for us. What are what are your thoughts on tonight's show, and what book should we uh, should we pick up that you're thinking about? Yeah, honestly, everything you covered is fantastic. A lot of this is our books that was recommended to me when I was coming out or questioning the church. There's one suggestion I had, and I'm not sure how possible this would be, but you guys are smart with connections. But when you pick up a book like, okay, Early Mormonism and the Magical Worldview, you know, it's huge. And so it's meant more of the scholarly work. And same thing with some of these other books um, in Sacred Loneliness, et cetera. Is there any way um, to be able to grab certain chapters of these books that are kind of some of the better chapters and have a reader, if you will, you know, Mormon messiness reader of some sort, kind of like you did in college lit class where, you know, you're not going to read all the works of Shakespeare, like you guys were just mentioning, but you may read some of the top ones, most influential ones, but I'm not sure how a publisher would handle that, but it seems like it would be a really interesting thing because if someone who's new to this could sit down, you know, in, in a sitting and read a little bit. Has, it, has that been a conversation that anyone's had in the past? Not anything. Or is it even worth having? Yeah, not anything I'm aware of. And I, I wouldn't even know how to go about doing that in, in terms of ensuring that you're not infringing on someone else's right to that as, as intellectual property, essentially. Um, I, I don't know. And, and there are. There's a lot of good Mormon history books that we just went over tonight that I don't think are on Audible. There's not really a way to access them other than to buy the book and read it. Yeah, and I think that. Yeah. This no, is, it's just a question. Adam, are you there? Yes. I think this yep, illustrates a, t a tension that has existed for a long time in Mormon studies, which is the idea of making something readable to the average person and not hyper-technical or scholarly. Right. Um, because if you do that, and I'm going to use No Man Knows My History as an example of a something that's very accessible to a large number of people. But I was speaking with a friend of mine the mm -hmm. other day who had read that a long time ago as a member and had not really cared right. that much about it because there's such a dearth of sources or citations, right? Because usually when you're reading it, mm -hmm. it's not just, I mean, you want to know that what you're reading is factual. That's very important. And usually that's only right. done through lots of uh, resources and through the scholarly method. So all I'm doing is recognizing the tension that you're talking about with your question. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, I appreciate that. I was a lit major, so my wife tends to look at anything I read, roll her eyes anyway. Oh. But you so know, you're when talking I'm trying about to anthologies to read something. <laughs> yeah, I love anthologies; they're great. Yeah. Um, nerd out for a moment, but yeah, with, when you're looking at early Mormonism, magical worldview, one of my favorite um, books. It, yeah, you, you really you, you can pick out a chapter or two and share it with someone, but you know, you get bogged down by the notes in the second. Uh, edition and all the rest of it. And I think it become, can become overwhelming to where a person won't even begin to look at any of this evidence, even if it's very well balanced, because, you know, it's like a wall with no handholds. How do you even begin to climb? Mm -hmm. So anyway, it's just a thought. What you guys are doing tonight, though, I think is a great step. And I appreciate you talking about all these books. Those really Adam, nice. Adam, before you go anywhere, I want to take you back to what Bill mentioned yeah, sure. earlier, the Mormon primer. Okay. That is excellent. Yes, I just saw that. 
that is so oh, good because what Bill does is he, he gives the, the faithful version and he's not trying to play any games. He's not slanting this in any way. He's just giving the faithful sure. version, the critics version, the apologist version of several different issues. Mm -hmm. About 15. How many is it, Bill? Yeah, maybe. Let me hear. I can count them real quick. It's uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 15, 18, 19, 20, 20. 20, 20 issues. Of the main mm -hmm. issues in church history. And it's just a few pages long with each one. Right. But you get all these that you get the, the, the church's point of view without any slams or any criticism. He is just very good about presenting the church's view. And it's the one we all know, right? But he puts it out there. Then he puts right. the, uh, the critic's point of view, the apologist's point of view. And then he puts a way to potentially reconcile all three. Yeah, we put tons of footnotes. That's great. All the footnotes yeah. uh, at the end of each chapter are clickable. You can go and search them. You can actually get the book for like 99 cents on Amazon. Uh, so I, I am in a published author. And you should do that quickly because it's by... Awesome. You may have already said this. Yeah. What's that? I was just saying, did you link this in the... Uh, did you link this somewhere on your site that we could access or... Yeah, if you go you to... You might have already done that. Yeah, if you go to Mormon Discussions, which is the main umbrella site, uh, I've got it up on the screen right now so folks can see it. But if you go to the main umbrella site, you can go to the very bottom, click the Mormon primer, and it takes you right to page one. Boom, baby. And oh, you might want to look at that really quickly because by midnight tonight, it's going to be behind yeah. a paywall. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. it'll be free, I we'll promise. No, but, that's great. Well, cool. thank you. Great show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, friend. Adam. Have a good one. Bye-bye. We'll see you. Bye-bye. All right. So let how me many pages are in the primer? Ray oh, Lawler take, wants to know. Let's take a look. If uh, 72-74, let's go all the way to the bottom here. 82. This 82 is version 7.0. 20 issues. So that's basically four pages an issue. That's really Yeah, amazing. it's a really quick read. There's tons of footnotes if you want to chase sources down. Um, but there it is. So Mormon primer. All right, there's a little free advertising. Um, let's go to another caller here. That's not that one. All right, caller. It says the screener failed. What's the name? Uh, Christian. Christian, what do you think about tonight's show? You're on Mormonism Live. Yeah, you got some uh, great uh, books there. The one I was thinking, though, that you guys didn't mention is uh, Blood of the Prophets by Will Bagley. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been a church member of the uh, the Mormon church, but um, honestly, just as like an American, I found this really disturbing, just like all the theocratic government aspects of uh, Utah and like uh, like castration, offing church enemies and things like that. And uh, yeah, that's what I have to say. Thank you. There's this weird thing, RFM, that... Like the the Danites, um, not the yeah the Danites. No 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 the Whistling Whittlers. That's what I'm thinking of. The Whistling Whittlers. We we get taught that they're ironic priesthood, so we're kind of told they're the kids and they just have little pocket knives. And the reality right. is they're grown men who today would be holding the Melchizedek priesthood, but because of the way the priesthood was dished out in the in the early history of the church, right. um, no kids, no young people held priesthood. It was all adults, and so some men were. Um, in the Melchizedek priesthood, and there were some men in the Aaronic priesthood, but these would have been grown men who were making veiled threats at uh, anybody in town that the church didn't want to be in town. And it's so strange how we get this story that it's just a couple of Boy Scouts with a pocket knife and whistling along, you know? 
Oh, right. Instead of grown men with Bowie knives. Right. So anyway, um, but thank you, caller. Uh, yeah, I'll put, we put blood of the prophets up there. So, um, people got a chance to see that one. Thank, thank you. you. Now that's a knife. All right. Let me, uh, take two more here and we'll call it a night. Um, is this Jason? Uh, yes. Jason, um, I had another, uh, I, I had another book I wanted to add, which is, uh, Recovering agency. Uh, so many of these books are about the past, and uh, you can always twist the past a little bit. But this is about the behavior right now, and I found it to be one of the best books on, yeah. on issues that I think are important. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let, let's, Thank want, you for your. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome. Thank you, Jason. That's a great, great call by Luna Lindsay Corbin, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'll just say. If you open this book, it goes into every psychological mechanism that's there. At some point, I want to sit down and go over this book. I've got it on my shelf, mm. and I want to create a bunch of bunch more episodes of the Cognitive um, Dissidents podcast where I show the psychological mechanisms and use audio bites from the church and other high-demand fundamentalist religions to show how those mechanisms are uh, in place. But this book is like an inch and a half thick. And it is just full of how the church manipulates you using facets of psychology, such as the illusory truth effect. Um, uh, what's um, oh, I'm trying to think of the other one that comes to the top of my head all the time, but this idea of how you manipulate people to believe things and what kinds of um, mechanisms you put into a religious system to get people to, to believe more emphatically, but great book. Um, so anyway, there's that one. All right. Let me get the last call in. Let me get the last call. Oops, that dropped. Let's see here. All right. This Is this Anthony? Anthony, is this Yes, your, this is right? Anthony. All right, my friend, you're on Mormonism Live. Hey. Yeah, I just want to thank Dan Vogel for his corrections he makes and the direction he gives in all of his work. And uh, I blame you or keeping me in a church as long as I have been and staying in the struggle. Uh, but I just can't do it anymore. Mm. And, uh, yeah, um, I love your work. I love your podcast. And uh, Dan Vogel, for me, is the man. Yeah, I, I don't speak for RFM, but from my point of view, you don't have to stay on my behalf. Get the hell out. You know, do whatever, do whatever you need to do. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't... I'm with you though. There was a lot of years where I really wanted to slow people down and help them process it and not just leave instantly. But now I'm far, I'm far enough away from this thing that uh, I'm I'm a lot more okay if you just leave today if you want to. Yeah, and that's that's a point I had to get to is where I, I was glad I didn't leave yeah. that quickly. I, you know, some people leave in three hours, others in three months, and then nine years for me to struggle. Yeah. So. Some take 40 I think years. Best, I think it's best to go through, go through the things you have to go through and leave on your own terms and not on the terms of the church. Right. Yeah, do it on your right. terms. Right. Good point. By the way, Anthony. Anyway, thank you, guys. Anthony. Hang on a second. Yes, Anthony, remember, the glory is yes. the struggle. Yeah. And extra credit for anybody who gets that movie reference. I do not. But, okay, sorry. You're out of here. Uh, there is, there is, there is, 
truth comes out of struggle. So thanks, you guys. Have a yes, absolutely. And by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. Yes, it is. And the glory is the struggle. Any takers? Somebody got the crocodile Dundee. I don't know if anybody got the Ghostbusters reference early on. Print is dead. But we'll see if anybody gets the glory is the struggle. Hey, are there no women calling in? Or are we like getting boycotted for some reason? Because Maven's yeah. not here. No women are going to call in. I, I don't know. That was the end of the calls. And I was getting ready to shut the call studio down. Oh, shoot. Okay. Well, maybe next maybe. week. Yeah, one of these days we'll have to cover our favorite podcast episodes. Maybe we'll cover our favorite dialogue articles, but there's a lot of Mormonism yet to cover on, uh, on Mormonism Live. Uh, any other thoughts from you tonight? Yeah, can I say something to Misa Susaki? Mitsu Suzaki. Gesundheit. No, Misa Suzaki uh, is somebody who's commenting in the, um, the thread that she's not, I guess it's a she, I'm sorry, I don't know, she or he. Uh, is not leaving the church. Well, I just want you to know, on behalf of Radio Free Mormon and Mormonism Live, if I can speak for the entity, that we're not here trying to get you to leave the church at all. We're just grateful that you're here, that you're listening, you're participating. Our goal is not to get anybody to leave the church. Our goal is not to get anybody to join the church. Our goal is just to talk about the church in as honest and correct and forthright and complete away as we possibly can, because we find Mormonism to be something that's endlessly fascinating, even though I personally have graduated from Mormonism and Bill had graduation thrust upon him. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, I uh, just want you to know you're, everybody's welcome, all welcome, all are welcome. This podcast is clean and uh, hopefully everybody will keep coming and tell your friends. Uh, to come and join us every Wednesday evening at 6.20 Mountain Time for another episode of Mormonism Live, where we cover all the interesting aspects of Mormonism. Yeah. What, do, what are we covering next week, RFM? I'm not sure yet. That's how interesting it's going to no, be. No, no, no. And we do that from time to time. There's a lot of episodes I come up with about three or four days ahead of time. I come so, up with them about three or four minutes beforehand. Oh, well, let's, let's, I'm excited to see what happens. Next oh, week. you are. I was just going to, play something here but yeah. uh, i don't i don't see it we'll just hit the closing everybody we'll see you next week uh don't forget to if you're going to buy these books off amazon do it through the amazon smile and send a few cents our way and uh, again if anybody is uh thinking about brit hartley and what's going on with her and her family uh send a few bucks to to that fundraiser at almostawaken.org and please 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 Help us keep going too. Go to mormonismlive.org, hit the donate button, send a few bucks. Uh, doesn't matter to us. You know, it can be small, two, three bucks a month, five bucks a month, 30 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month. Some people do donate that much, but we really do get by on the smaller donations and it means a lot to us. Um, RFM, I really appreciate you and all that you add, uh, not just to this podcast, but to my world um, as a whole and really appreciate who you are and what you do and all the good work that you've done. Well, thank you so much. It looks like some people are still trying to figure out what that was. What what was the quote? The glory is in the, the glory is the struggle. Oh, I didn't see it come through yet. Uh, and just out. a note, I I do see a little nineteen ninety six movie called. What is it? Wait a second here. You go ahead. You finish what you're going to say. No, no, no. no you go for right. If you need to look something up, I can do that then. Uh, there's a guy in the chat named Gene Robbins, is. I guess, who wants to put us in our place and tell us we're getting something wrong, but. Um, by all means, Gene, just get in on the front end of the, fall, the call screener and uh, we'd love to put you on and have a conversation. If there's something we're not saying right or being accurate about, uh, we'd welcome that conversation. And I agree with you, RFM. I don't care if people stay or leave, but 
damn it, let's give them enough information that they can make an informed decision. Absolutely. The answer is the ghost and the darkness. Thank <laughs> you.